I do ask that you be turning in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9. Last year, as we well know, was a presidential election year. And election years in particular uh, hold a lot of interest for us, uh, don't they? Uh, there are times of, of a lot of intrigue as, as different candidates vie for the highest offices in the land and really in the world. And uh, we see the popularity of some uh, wane and, and others um, uh, surge. And they have debates and, um, and their backgrounds are probed. And, and there's a lot of human interest involved in uh, politics. But there's a lot also that is repulsive to us in the realm of politics, especially in election years. We see people at their worst. It tends to draw out of people pride and arrogance and selfish ambition, things which James tells us create disorder in every evil thing. But politics is not the only realm in which we see prideful, selfish ambition. We see it in other realms as well. In our day, we have come to distrust the media big time, haven't we? Because we find that they, they distort reality and they present narratives which, which present their point of view for their particular ends. And we can't trust much media today because of, of self-interest. The big pharmaceutical industries have become highly suspect because we have found that they have suppressed the knowledge of effective treatments of COVID in favor of those means which will bring them huge profits, and they have brought huge profits. But then on a smaller scale, we see it in the workplace, don't we? We see a lot of selfish ambition, people elbowing each other for advancement and stepping over one another, playing king of the hill to, to get to the top, to achieve positions of power and influence. Sadly, we also see it in churches and denominations where people vie for power and are selfishly ambitious and, and they even lie and they adopt all kinds of unscrupulous means to, to get elected to positions of power, even within Christian, so-called Christian denominations. Friends, when mankind fell into sin, we fell into a state of sinful and selfish ambition. But thanks be to God, a second Adam has come. And he's come from heaven. And heaven is a place where there's no selfish vying for power, no competition, only perfect peace and harmony among the members of the Holy Trinity and the holy angels. And this Jesus has come to earth to bring his kingdom to us and to bring us into his kingdom, which is characterized by drastically different values than those that are characteristic in the world. And in our text for study this morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're going to see that Jesus teaches his disciples a vital lesson about way, the way of life in the kingdom of God. Specifically, what constitutes greatness in the kingdom of God? Who are the great ones in the kingdom of God? In a world where people vie for power and authority and control over each other with selfish ambition, what does God and what does Jesus esteem as honorable and praiseworthy? Those questions will be answered in our text, Mark 9, 33 to 37. Follow as I read those verses. They, with Jesus and the disciples, came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, they, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, 
He called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Well, I want to draw out four lines of thought from this passage, but before we get into that, I just want to note the first phrase. It says that um, they came to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was Jesus' longtime headquarters when he conducted the great Galilean ministry, and this will be his last visit there because he is on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. Now, the house that it's referred to here is mentioned at other times in the Gospels. It's the house where men dug a hole and lowered the crippled man in front of Jesus. It's the house where Jesus healed the mother-in-law of Peter. And there's a question about what house was this? Some believe it was a house owned by Peter. Others believe it was a house actually owned by the Lord Jesus. That's not so important to answer. But what seems to be important is that Jesus waited until they got to that settled place in the house before he questioned his disciples about what they were talking about. He didn't want to bring it up casually along the way, because as we will see, it's a very serious matter. So the first thing I want to see from this passage is what I'm calling the probing question that prepares the way for the lesson. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, there's an assumption behind this question. The assumption is that Jesus knew exactly what they were discussing. In fact, Luke's version even says, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. He not only knew what they were talking about, he knew what they were thinking. And he didn't know it because he had overheard them. If he had overheard them, there would have been no question. Of course, he knew what they were thinking and knew what they were talking about because he overheard them. But it's not because he overheard them. As we'll see in a a, a chapter later, Jesus, as the master, was walking on ahead and his disciples were following behind. They were straggling behind. And obviously, they were involved in this rather intense but probably subdued debate. Dialogizomai. They were debating which one of them was the greatest. From the response, we see they didn't want Jesus to hear what they were discussing, but Jesus knew not only what they were were talking about, but what they were thinking. How did he know? Well, it appears that this one was an occasion where Jesus' divine nature imparted information to his human nature. Jesus' human nature was not omniscient. In fact, a couple chapters, a few chapters later, he's going to actually tell us that in his human nature, he doesn't even know when the time of his return is. His human nature was not omniscient. And a lot of times Jesus found out things by gathering information, but this seems to be an occasion when his divine nature imparted information to his human nature. And so he knew what they were talking about. But now consider the aim of the question. If he knew what they were talking about, why did he ask? Well, aren't we finding that Jesus often asks questions not to gain information, but for another reason? The reason he asked them, so what were you guys talking about, is similar to the reason that God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 came to Eve and said, what is this you have done? It's not because he didn't know what Adam and Eve had done in eating the forbidden fruit. Why was it that he asked the question? 
It was to awaken guilt in them and to get them to consider their ways. When the Jews were rebuilding their own homes, before they were rebuilding the temple back in the land, God comes to them through the prophet and he says, consider your ways. That's what Jesus is doing here and asking this probing question. He wants them to consider their ways, consider their words, which are really in a, a reflection of the heart because, as he says in another place, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now let's pause there and ask what we can learn for ourselves. Well, one thing we learn is that Jesus knows our thoughts as well as our words, doesn't he? We cannot keep anything from him. Matthew Henry says, thoughts are words to him and whispers are loud cries. That's very sobering, isn't it? Beyond that, Jesus is going to hold us accountable for our words, even as he's holding these men accountable. He wants to know what they said, and he's going to evaluate what they said. Jesus is going to hold us accountable for our words. In fact, Matthew 12, 36 speaks this sober reality. Jesus says, every careless word men will give account of in the day of judgment. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. He hears our secret conversations. He perceives even our secret thoughts. Therefore, Matthew Henry says, we better keep up a strict government of our thoughts because Christ takes a strict cognizance of them. And that tells us that as Christians, we need to be conscious not only of our words, but even our thoughts and think those things and speak only those things which will not make us ashamed in the presence of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus knows your thoughts and your words doesn't it make you very thankful that you are forgiven of all your sins? He knows all your secret thoughts, all your secret uh, words, all the things done in secret. Aren't you grateful that your record is completely expunged clean from sin and there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus? But next we want to see what I'm calling the guilty silence that reveals the need for this lesson that Jesus is going to give. Okay, so he asks them, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Well, this reveals something about the disciples. What facts about the disciples are revealed by their silence and even by their conversation? Well, it's very clear that the disciples still had earthly ideas about Messiah's kingdom, don't they? They are deeply entrenched in their minds. They're still anticipating a kingdom that is, that is invested with earthly glory and, and grandeur. And how far removed from the thinking of Jesus was this? Jesus was repeatedly trying to tell them that his kingdom was about suffering and that he would be delivered up to the chief priests and elders and he would even be killed. Despite the fact that he keeps hammering that theme, they are not getting it. And they're still thinking that when he comes in his kingdom, there's going to be glory and power and honor for us. We further learn that these earthly hopes were feeding their pride, their selfish ambition, their jealousy, and their envy. Here is Jesus walking on ahead. What is he likely meditating on? He's going to the cross. And Jesus probably is filled with sober and sad thoughts of what he's facing in Jerusalem. And these guys are following behind, talking about which one of them is the greatest. Now, as one commentator notes, their discussion may have been fueled by the Mount of Transfiguration incident. Can you just imagine knowing human nature, knowing yourself, the three who were 
chosen to be with Jesus, can you imagine them saying, well, you know, he chose, he didn't choose you guys, he, he chose us to be with him on the holy mountain. And can you imagine them perhaps, um, you know, smug in their silence? They were, they were told not to tell anybody. And can you imagine them saying, what we saw on that mountain was you wouldn't believe, but we can't tell you, of course. And can you imagine that arousing in them a sense of jealousy and indignation and, and resentment, right, as they're competing for, for places of position? Maybe Peter would have put himself forth. After all, I've been the spokesman. After all, I made the great confession. Of course, he also received the great rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. He wouldn't have mentioned that. But maybe Peter was putting himself forth. He was a very forward man. Maybe Judas, he was a wicked man to begin with, and he was the treasurer. Maybe he was asserting himself as the one who would have greater authority in the kingdom. We know from the next chapter that John and James come to Jesus and say, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and your left? So they had selfish ambition. But whatever the particulars, here are the 12 disciples, each one asserting himself, vaunting himself over his brothers, proclaiming his own praise and merit, pronouncing his right to superiority of place and position over his brothers, each one seeking his own at the expense of others. How different was their mindset? How different the spirit in them than was in the Lord Jesus Christ? But we also learn from their silence that there was guilt and shame involved. When Jesus asked the question, so what were you talking about on the way? The immediate response, the immediate response was silence. Obviously, it was an embarrassed, sheepish silence. Proverbs 28.1 says, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. They were not prepared to answer righteously and boldly because they knew what they were talking about and they knew they were wrong. Their consciences, but at least we can say their consciences were alive. You know, sometimes we're seeing a comparison between the disciples of Jesus and the Pharisees. They both seem to have a hardness of heart. They both don't get it. But there is a difference. There is a difference. These disciples, although they're slow to get it, they have a tender conscience. And in their better moments, they know that they're not fit even to be in Jesus' presence. Remember Peter at one point saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Their consciences are at least tender. Not so the Pharisees and scribes. They could see Jesus in all his excellence and humility. They can hear his words, and they can still continue in their proud, pompous pursuit of, of power and position and honor among men, but not so the disciples. But what do we learn from the guilty silence of these disciples when asked, so what were you talking about? And they answered nothing. Well, I think we learn, first of all, how stubborn and entrenched the sins of pride and selfish ambition can be. J.C. Ryle says we are all born Pharisees. All think better of ourselves than we ought. And these sins of pride and selfish ambition are ancient sins. I think Ryle calls attention to the fact that that was the sin in the Garden of Eden that plunged us into this fallen condition. Our first parents wanted to be like God. It's an ancient sin. It's a subtle sin. Pride and selfish ambition can sometimes clothe itself in the garb of humility. Think about it. These men were serving Christ. They had already sacrificed a lot to follow Jesus, and yet they're still brimming with selfish ambition. Spiritual pride 
can be especially insidious and subtle because it's pride, but it's kind of clothes itself with, you know, the language of, of humility and spirituality and profess spiritual intentions. If you want to listen to something that's fascinating, Christianity Today has been producing a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about a narcissistic pastor, you know his name, who built a huge empire with multiple campuses and thousands of followers. His prideful and selfish ambition, however, was masked, at least in the initial stages, because of his professed desire to impact and transform one of the most secular cities in the country, Seattle. And apparently he was going to help men to be real men. And so people didn't see it at first. But eventually it all came crashing down when his cover was blown to even the least discerning. Spiritual pride can be insidious and subtle. Pride is also potentially damning. Pride can, if it goes unhumbled, can keep us from repentance and coming from for, to the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. This guilty silence also teaches us to examine our own hearts for remaining pride and selfish ambition. In what areas of your life might there be this sin of wanting to be greater than others? Now, not all ambition is bad. Not at all. We should be ambitious to be the best we can be at work, at our jobs, in our place of employment. We should work hard to do good works, to lay up treasures in heaven, to see the kingdom of God grow. I, I read a, an excellent book a few years ago I commend to you. It's called Rescuing Ambition by Dave Harvey. And it shows the difference between holy, godly ambition that glorifies God and ambition that is selfish and sinful. What makes it wrong? What makes ambition wrong? It is the selfish part of it. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine in front of men that they will see your good works. But he didn't stop there. If, that, if he stopped there, that could be pride and selfish ambition. But he finishes, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the key. The praise and the glory must not rest at our feet, but at the feet of our God. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you haven't received? If you received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so we all need to ask, where is there vainglory and pride and selfish ambition remaining in us? Is it that we think our opinion is better and wiser than others? That we, that I am the smartest person in the room? Is it that in conversations I always dominate and, and soak up all the time talking about myself because I want to draw attention to myself? Is it because I deserve to be recognized for this position or that above others? And the guilty silence of the disciples also teaches us to be ashamed of our pride and selfish ambition to the degree that we see ourselves in ourselves a desire to put ourselves above our brothers and sisters, to have more power, more authority, more of a voice, to receive more attention, more glory to that degree we should be ashamed before the Lord Jesus and ask him, Lord, please put that to death in me. But then the silence of the disciples and this interaction not only reveals things about the disciples, it also reveals some things about Jesus. 
The silence teaches us about Jesus, that he is a wise and loving reprover. Proverbs 25, 11, and 12 says, Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Jesus is a wise reprover. How wise he was in reproving his disciples. You know, he didn't come at them bellowing accusations. He didn't come reading them the riot act for their pride. He simply asked the question, so what were you discussing in the way? But it cut like an arrow to the quick. That's all it took. What a wise reprover and what a loving reprover Jesus is. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A pastor once told me the one who loves you the most is the one who tells you the most truth about yourself. Now, hopefully they'll do that lovingly and respectfully, but they'll tell you truth about yourself. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And Jesus loved his disciples too much to let them go on in their arrogance and self-promotion and pride. He was going to expose it. He loved his father's kingdom too much. Imagine entrusting the kingdom of God when he went back to heaven to men who were selfishly ambitious. How would that fare for the church ongoingly? This pride, this selfish ambition needed to be driven out of them, out of love for them, out of love for his father, his father's kingdom, out of love for all the elect. And so Jesus is a wise and loving reprover. And he is our example in this. We need to be wise and loving in our reproof of our brothers and sisters. Now, we should give far more encouragement and affirmation to one another than we give reproof and correction. Would you agree? But when you give a lot of encouragement and affirmation, then when you come with a correction, it carries some weight. Because that person says, I know that person loves me. I know that person is seeing the good in me and the grace in me. And when they see a fault in me, I can receive it because I know they're seeing the good that God has worked in me. But we need sometimes to bring reproof to one another. And we need to do it wise and lovingly like Jesus did. Sometimes all it takes is a well-placed question that probes the conscience and cuts to the quick. Jesus, our example, as a wise and loving reprover. Third point out of four is the importance of humble servanthood that is the vital lesson. So Jesus puts a probing question to his disciples based on what he knows about what they're talking about, even what they're thinking. They respond with a guilty silence that reveals their need for this vital lesson. They were silent. They knew they were guilty. They knew they shouldn't have been talking about what they were talking about. But in verse 35, he brings the vital lesson that they so desperately needed. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, there's something significant about the posture here. Remember, we said he didn't want to just bring it up casually as they're on the way. He waits until they're in the home, and then he sits down. Friends, that's the official posture of the teacher, of the discipler. And he takes the position of, of official teacher. I'm going to sit down now and teach you. You're the learners. You're the disciples. I'm the teacher. It's a matter of fundamental, vital importance what he is going to say to them. And the first thing I note 
is the ambition of the disciples is not extinguished. Listen carefully here. Notice he says, if anyone wants, literally in the Greek, wills to be first, in a sense, he is legitimizing an ambition to be first. He doesn't extinguish it. Listen to some commentators. Richard Lenski is bold to say, Jesus is not averse to the ambition of his disciples to be greater than others. He encourages that ambition in all of them. He does more. He urges all to strive to be first, not merely to be greater than some others, but to be greatest. Another commentator, A.B. Bruce, asserts, he said not on this occasion. He said not on any other. It is needless to ask who is the greatest in the kingdom. There is no such thing as distinction of greater and less there. On the contrary, it is implied here and it is asserted elsewhere that there is such a thing. There are grades of distinction there that is in the kingdom of God as well as in the kingdoms of the world. And we know that there are degrees of reward in heaven. There are degrees of punishment in hell, Jesus taught. And so holy ambition to excel in the kingdom of God is not extinguished by Jesus here. He doesn't throw a wet blanket on it. What does he do? Whereas he doesn't extinguish ambition, the ambition of the the disciples is radically redirected. Again, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants wills to be first, that's okay. You can will to be first. You can will to be the greatest. Ah, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So, He's saying, look, it's okay to want to be first, but you need to hear me as to what it means to be great and what it means to be first in my kingdom. And you can just see 12 sets of eyes opened wide, 12 sets of ears opened wide to receive. What is the secret to greatness? Each one confident that that he's going to be the winner. The, The mantle's going to fall on him. I'm going to win the trophy. And then to see their faces when he says, you want to be first? You want to be great? He shall be last of all and servant of all. Here, brothers and sisters, is the key to greatness in the kingdom of God. And it's topsy-turvy from the world. It's totally opposite to the way of the world and the way of fallen human society. The world says rule to be great. Jesus says serve to be great. The world says be proudly and personally ambitious and self-assertive. Christ says be humble and self forgetful. The world says, aim to receive honor and attention. Christ says, give of yourself and attend on others. The world says, assert yourself. Christ says, deny yourself. The world says, find your life by making a name for yourself. Jesus says, lose your life in service to others. The world says, get to the point where you're looking down on others. King of the hill, Jesus is saying, no, Get to the point where you're bearing the burdens of others on your back. It's okay to be great, men, but your ideas of greatness have to be radically reversed. And look at the language here. If anyone wills to be first, and one Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, says that is a volative future. In other words, it's something that has to come from your own volition. In other words, they need to make conscious effort of wanting to be great by being last. So here is the measure of true greatness in God's kingdom. Here is what God esteems and Christ esteems as great. 
Here is the badge of Christian discipleship. Here is what will bring you the favor and praise of God. Here is what will provide, as Peter says, an abundant entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And friends, this teaching is supported and buttressed by other scriptures throughout. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Isaiah 57, 15, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is opposed to the proud, James says, but gives grace to the humble, quoting Proverbs 3.34. And Peter says the same. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? It's not being the king of the hill. It's not ruling over others, not asserting yourself over others. It is being a servant to others, a slave to others. It's being last. What does that look like for us? What does that look like boots on the ground for us? Well, let's look at it in the various relationships of life in which we're called to serve. Let's look first at the most intimate human relationship, your marriage. Husbands, you are to be servants of your wives. That doesn't take away from your authority as the leader of your wife. It simply says that you are to be a servant leader to your wife. And there are seven areas that we glean where you are to serve your wife as a servant leader. You are to love her. Love her with a demonstrated, verbalized, and affectionate love. You are to lead her with clarity, with firmness, with gentleness, as one who yourself is being led by God and gives her the confidence, I'm being led by one who's being led by God. You're called to nourish her, Ephesians 5, to build her up with your words and by your example of godliness. You are to cherish her, again, Ephesians 5, letting her know that she is precious to you. You are to provide for her. You are to protect her as you would your own body, Moving to 1 Peter 3, you are to live sensitively with her, literally katanosin, according to knowledge with her. You are to study, to learn what are her strengths, what are her weaknesses, what are her fears, her gifts, her abilities, her limitations. And Peter, again, you are to honor her as a joint heir of the grace of life. You're a partner, you're a companion. You are to then serve your wife in the home. Wives, you are to serve your husband. How? by being a respectful, submissive helper to him. Respect means a great deal to your husband. You serve him well when you treat him with respect, when you follow his leadership, when it is right, when you speak respectfully to him, when you speak respectfully about him. That doesn't mean you don't give your ideas and your suggestions and your thoughts and even faithful wounds of a friend. But respect is a wonderful way to serve your husband because it means a great deal to him, even as love means a great deal to you. As parents, you are to serve your children. That doesn't take away from your authority and your leadership of your children, but you are to serve them. You serve them by meeting their physical needs. You serve them by meeting their spiritual needs, by teaching them the word of God and the gospel, by being a godly example to them in the home. You 
serve them by being aware of their childlike frame and disciplining them in a godly way. You serve them by studying them to see what has God packaged in my child that might lead to a future vocation so that you give them a head start in life, in, in training for those things. You serve them by treating them as little image bearers of God. Children, you are to serve in the home. You're to serve your parents. How? By obeying your parents in the Lord, for this is right. By saying to your parents often, thank you, mom. Thank you, dad, for all that you do for me. You provide food and clothing and shelter and love and care. Thank you, mom. Thank you, dad. Do you ever say that to your mom and dad? Children, you're to serve your brothers and sisters in the home by not being selfish, by looking out for their interests, by sharing with them, by seeking to make them happy. You're to serve your brothers and sisters. We're to be servants in the workplace. Some of you are owners or leaders in your business. What a beautiful thing when a man who's an owner, a leader or a woman shows concern for the workers at the grassroots level. They're not just cogs in a machine that's going to help you make money, but you show a personal interest in those workers. You, you invest yourself in them. You care about their family. You inquire about them. And they know you're out. Though you're the, the CEO, you're the executive, you're the co-owner, you care about them at the grassroots level. Or if you're working with peers, instead of playing the one-upsmanship games that people play, you know, elbowing one another to be king of the hill, you know, you're out for them. You care about their advancement. What a beautiful witness to the gospel when you serve your co-workers instead of trying to rule over them. And then in the church, we're to be servants in the church. We have gifts. Each of you has a gift. First Peter 4.10 says, as each has received a gift, employ it for one another as good stewards of the manifold, multicolored grace of God. First Corinthians 12 says, but to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. Here are some statements that should govern our life of servanthood in the body of Christ. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's a good one, Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Outdo one another in honor. King James, I think, has preferring one another in honor. You want to have a healthy competition in the church? Here it is. Outdo one another in showing honor. No, instead of, no, me first, me first. No, no, me last, me last, me last. That's the competition we ought to have. Outdoing one another and showing honor and preference to one another. That's a beautiful competition. Humble deference and servanthood. Well, brothers and sisters, may the Lord burn into our minds and hearts and lives this servant's mindset. This is what it means to be great in the kingdom. And as we read at the outset, Philippians 2, 5, Jesus is our supreme exemplar. Have the mind in you, the attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself and becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He is the supreme servant. He is the perfect servant. He is our model. And he lives within us. And he gives us the grace to imitate him. But finally, the receiving of a child that is used to illustrate the lesson. So here's the lesson. You want to be great, men? It's okay. You should want to be great. You should want to be first, but be first in serving. 
Then he brings a child in front of them, verses 36 and 37. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. What is the significance of receiving a child? Well, first of all, note, we see something of the wonderful gentleness of Jesus. Children readily came to him. Because even children, children can be very discerning. Sometimes they're gullible, but sometimes they're discerning. And they knew that Jesus was a safe place. And you can imagine Jesus gently calling the child. He wouldn't move radically. He would gently call the child, indicating it's okay. By his countenance, by his whole bearing, he would say, it's okay. You can come. I I care for you. And he calls a little child, and I don't think the child was fighting and screaming, but the child willingly came, and Jesus took the child in his arms as an object lesson, as, a, as an acted-out parable. What does it mean to serve? It means to receive one child like this. What is the significance of that? When you're selfishly ambitious, you tend to want to use people. Oh, yeah, I want a relationship with this person because this person will advance my reputation, my cause. Well, how can this person serve me? How can this person be a stepping stone to my success? What connections does this person have that will give me, help me to be connected and get on in the world and advance myself? Not so children, right? Children have no power, no influence, no prestige in society. They can't help us advance ourselves. And so Jesus says, as you receive this little child, that's what it means to be a servant. When you serve other people with no strings attached, no hidden agenda, when you serve those who cannot serve you back. Mothers, you are, who are in the thick of it, raising your children. Mothers will tell us, it is the most selfless thing you will ever do. You're giving far more to them than they are giving back to you, right, at this point. They're not giving a whole lot back. They are so needy, so dependent, and you are pouring out your life, energy, physically, emotionally, mentally for these kids who are giving very little back. Hopefully, according to Proverbs, they will one day rise up and call you blessed. But even if they don't, you're getting tremendous training for this chief virtue of servanthood. And when you do it well as a mother, and I know you mothers are doing it well, It will be to your benefit. You will be trained in selfless service to others. You know, a few years ago, it was very purifying to my heart as a pastor when the church I was ministering to was in Maryland, and I was working among the Amish here in Lancaster County, investing in various ones, and I had no church to bring them to. I had no church to build up. I had no place where I could say, yeah, here's the fruit of my ministry. See, all these people I'm ministering to, they're, they're gathered here. I'd minister to one and go off to that church. I'd minister to another and go off to that church. But, you know, it served me well. It served me to deepen my love for the kingdom of God. Lord, I'm not building my church because I don't even have a church here to build. But it's purifying my heart for the kingdom of God. It may not be visible, but I'm investing in your kingdom. And one day, hopefully, I'll see the fruit of it. It was very purifying to my heart. Um, because I had nothing to show for my ministry, as it were. There was no visible church. Oh, you know, these are all, no, some are here, some are there, some are everywhere. The true test of our servanthood is the degree to which we are willing to serve those who are not in a position to give back to us in return. If I say anything quotable in the sermon, that's a, that's a quotable, okay? 
The true test of our servanthood is the degree to which we are willing to serve those who are not in a position to give back to us in return. Finally, the glorious implications of receiving a child. There is a return, but it's not from man, it's from God. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. That's our motivation. Remember Jesus said, insofar as you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Does it thrill you to be able to serve the least? And that's not least in God's eyes, but least in the eyes of the world. Does it thrill you to say, I get to serve the least of those in the world because when I do it, I'm doing it unto Jesus. I'm receiving him. And Jesus says, I'm even receiving the Father. And so when you look at some lowly person, a homely person, in appearance, lowly in status and importance in society. And you say, well, I'm not going to be involved with that person because that person's not going to advance me at all. Ah, but over here, here's a person who is physically attractive and um, charming in their personality. He's got a quick wit, an interesting conversationalist, physically attractive. And, and ah, I'll invest in that person. That's contrary to the mind of Jesus. No, when you take a child, when you invest in people who can't give back to you, that's the measure of true servanthood, and that is what will be rewarded by Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, may God drive out of us all that is contrary to a servant's mindset and work in us more of the mind of him who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And may he Give us joy in serving those who cannot give back to us. Maybe they're unattractive and unlovely and unworthy and displeasing, but um, we're investing in them for his sake. And if, as you sit here and you listen to this, you say, yeah, you know, that's, that's not all that attractive to me. That's not really too appealing to me. Um, no, I, I, servanthood is not appealing to you. And Jesus is not appealing to you as the supreme servant. It's because you need his salvation. It's because you're still living for yourself. You're still consumed with self-interest and selfish ambition. And that's a miserable way to live. You're a little creature and you're not the center of the universe. God is. But Jesus is a willing savior who's willing to forgive you of all of your self-centeredness, all of your selfish ambition. He's willing to receive you and forgive you and change you into a person who finds delight not in serving him or herself, but in serving God and serving others in his name. He's done that for many of us, although the work is very incomplete and we have a lot of work to be done. He's able to change you so that you no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again on your behalf and then by his grace and power, you come to live for others. That is life indeed. That's the abundant life. Not living a self-absorbed, self-serving, self-advancing life, but living for the glory of God and the good of others. That's true freedom. That's true life. Jesus offers it to you. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we first confess that we are very much unlike you that we still have much selfish ambition, much pride by which we seek to advance ourselves and glory in ourselves. Lord, expunge it from us, root it out of us, and continue to press us into your beautiful image of, of a servant. Make us more to be servants to one another, to love one another, be absorbed in serving one another and not ourselves. Free us, Lord.
free us from the remaining bondage of self-will, self-service, and free us to become more like you. And if any are here who do not know you, Lord, would you do that radical change in them so they no longer live for themselves, but by your grace come to live for you and are free to live for others. We ask in Jesus' name.